You're listening to the Direct Trade Initiative Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Park, and today we'll be talking to Pastor Donnie Cho about vision casting, bivocational ministry, and leadership development. Let's go. privilege of uh, being here with Pastor Donnie Cho from uh, Philadelphia at Metro Presbyterian Church. Um, do you mind just giving a short bio on your family, your ministry, what you love? doesn't have to be that long. Yeah, uh, my name is Donnie Cho. I'm um, a pastor, the lead pastor at Metro. Uh, we are, we've been around since we launched in August of 2012, so we're gaining on now our, our fifth year anniversary. Mm-hmm. And uh Let's see. Uh, I started out really uh, not really involved in ministry uh, at a formal level or vocational level. Uh, I came back to Philadelphia in 2003 uh, expecting to attend law school and really just being involved uh, more heavily at, uh, at the camp ministry that I've been serving in since I was in college. Um, but uh, one thing led to another uh, and through a series of mentors, encounters, uh, changes and and just uh, even thinking through my vocation as well, I decided not to go to law school. I attended a program called LAMP, which is a PCA-founded uh, MDiv equivalent program that started in Florida and made its way here to Philadelphia. Okay. Wow. So that's, a, that's where I was exposed to a lot of new mentors. Um, and during that process, just came across a couple of men that really invested in my life. Um, and... Really, just because they just wanted to see me grow in ministry, uh, not with anything in particular in mind, but being involved in a church plant in Boston. I was part of City Life Church, uh, pastored by Stephen Um mm-hmm. up there. It was mm-hmm. a PCA church up there. I just wanted to get more involved in church planting. Next thing I know, I, I prayed through a call to ministry, uh, spoke to a few mentors, and Metro was born. And that was in 2012. So this whole journey, um, you know, my grew up... Um, single parent home uh, for the bulk of my life. And uh, I think, you know, I don't know if that's what had something to do with it, but God had kind of used that to maybe teach me to think more unorthodox in some Mm. ways. Um, And uh, uh, so through the different career turns and ministry turns, um, having been educated in Boston and coming back down to Philly as a home, which is what I always intended to do. Uh, Metro now look back, it's it's like the perfect fit and mm-hmm. what I'm what I'm doing today, and just really grateful for that. Okay, uh, something about your your family, your wife. Yep. Oh yeah, my uh, <clears throat> my wife is a physical therapist in uh, in Philadelphia. Um, she's born in Philadelphia, raised in Philadelphia, <laughs> educated in Philadelphia. She went to Penn. Uh, and then from there, uh, grad school, I believe, at Temple for her physical therapy doctorate. And then from there, she, she's she been serving and, and working in the city ever since. Uh, we met actually at a ski trip uh, while I was still in Boston through uh, some mutual friends. And uh, our friendship kind of took off. Mm. She got really involved in some of the ministries I've been involved with and vice versa. And uh, we got married in uh, in 2010. So uh, it's, been a, it's been an amazing ride. And and uh, doing church planning together in many ways as a, as a partner and a friend and, and just as a, as a, my, the love of my life. It's been mm. awesome. <clears throat> uh, so one of the main things I wanted to talk uh, to you about was uh, bivocational ministry. That's something that I don't know that many pastors doing it or doing it <laughs> yeah. well at least, but I see the ministry thriving uh, job. I'm assuming things are going really well. Um, but before that, do you think you can just give me 
uh, tell us what the vision of Metro is or, or what you had just in a, as an idea. Yeah, um, the gospel, uh, understanding now there are more and more churches uh, in America that are talking about what it means to be gospel-centered and not to create a distinction between churches that are and churches that aren't, mm-hmm. but uh, my life has been, I've, I've dis- in, a, in a way experienced a rediscovery of the gospel years ago, uh, you know, years, probably decades ago now, we're looking at 1998, if I can pinpoint a time. Up until that point, I mean, when I was being, uh, when I brought, when I, when I came under care in the PCA, one of the things that uh, they ask you uh, when you first come into care is uh, your Christian, uh, your, your, your narrative, uh, how you came to Christ. And uh, one of the questions that they asked was when you became a Christian. And I said, well, you know, if you asked me that years ago, I w- it would be very easy. I could tell you that I, I probably got, uh, came to the Lord at some point when I, around when I was nine years old. Now it's hard for me to tell. Mm. It's sometime between the ages of nine and 24. <laughs> and it's because of my, this transformative experience of really realizing what the heart of the Christian faith and Christian life is. Mm. Now, um, Metro is founded on the gospel and we, uh, our ministry, we believe that the inside of the cabinet, everything that we do on our, in our inner workings is the same as the outside of the cabinet, which is, uh, what people see. And so our over preaching and worship style, our teaching, our discipleship that's overt is re- really just a reflection of everything that we believe as a team of leaders on the inside and how we value what we value on the inside. So, we're a core values-based ministry. Uh, we believe in the city. We want to embrace the city. We want to embrace the gospel for the city. Uh, as a result, we love community. We're, we're community dependent. We want to be more than just one church. I believe that when I first came into uh, church planting, um, it wouldn't make sense to just have one. We need a network of churches that are partnered together, founded in the city. And the best way to do that is to saturate the area with churches that you're planting yourself. So we believe that God has called us to plant 15 churches in the span mm. of 15 years. Oh, okay. And that involves a lot of training. And so community, movement, city, gospel. Uh, and uh, I think it's also part of our personality. We want to be creative. And we believe that the city harnesses a lot of creative talent. So we want to be able to focus on that. And uh, so we're a ministry that's really geared towards uh, city uh, folk, urbanites. In Philadelphia, you have a, you have urban, you have city, and you have suburban, but they're all kind of revolving around the greatness of this city itself. Mm. And with Philadelphia's resurgence on the map now, socially and culturally, we believe that we're kind of in a good position, especially we're kind of trailing on the heels of, of other great church planning ministries that, that have already started here as well. So we have great mentors, great older brother figures that we can follow. That's really what we're doing. And we're, we're, you know, like I said, four and a half years old um, and really just getting started in our ministry. But um, that's where, you know, we believe we are. We're, we believe we're in a great spot to just really learn and grow and plan other churches. Yeah, I hear a little uh, Keller in you, uh, the Gospel City movement. Yeah, yes. I'm really big on that myself. Great. That's wonderful. I mean, it's, it is, uh, he really is the guy who started all that in some mm-hmm. ways. I mean, not to say that he invented it, but in many ways, his, his missiology and his uh, his ecclesiology, the right place and time in New York too, and Manhattan was kind of dying in mm-hmm. some ways. Um, there was a, there was a dearth of churches there. He really went out on a limb, and it really became a beacon for everybody else. You know, so I shamelessly probably plagiarize him in some ways. Uh, <laughs> you know, in terms of just mentality wise or philosophy wise. Yeah. 
I think a lot of pastors would say the same. <laughs> um, do you, can you just tell just a little bit about uh, the state of Metro right now, you know, how big it is, um, yeah. uh, what the next step might be, whatever you think would help? Yeah, we're, uh, we're right now, when we first came in, our first stage was a focus on worship uh, and preaching that was our, and, and developing community. Uh, we, wanted to do, we said the important thing here is to figure out who's going to come that we can start to build around. Um, and before we focus on what Metro is really intending to do over the next 10 years. So we said, let's have good worship, a good style, and develop a collective soul, a collective presence in the church. And so God granted that over the first three years, you really saw a soul developing. That was hard because so many different, our church consists of 80%, 80% of the people in our church, when they first walked into Metro, on the average, will say that they haven't been to church in over three years. And so a lot of the pastors who say that, well, that person really belonged to our church, the the actual reference point there is really, they came to your church when they were in college Mm. or when they were young adults and they, before they left the church, they're Mm. Mm de-churched. So uh, there's, and there's a difference between de-church and non-church. We have about 80% de-churched congregation. So if you imagine Worship, preaching, centrality of both um, community groups were very, very big. That's the fir- that's all we focused on the first three years. After that, we said, well, we have a bunch of biblically illiterate people now in our church um, who are really being fed through preaching and through community groups um, that are not Bible study focused in, in community groups. So what we said was uh, we need to educate them. We need to disciple them. So now... Really, the next and probably ongoing, our focus is really on the development of our of our people at different tiers, you know. Um, and uh, there are many avenues and channels that we're building so that people can come, learn, grow, be discipled. Um, our goal is to send them out vocationally, whether it's in their workplace, faith and work, or uh, just being engaged in the city as a quote unquote leader of the city. You know, mm-hmm. if you're if you're working in the city, you're a leader. You are. You can speak with a voice that many urban urban folk cannot, and mm-hmm. so we believe that's leadership, and uh, it's really to train them vocationally to think that way. That's really where we're headed right now. We're doing that through discipleship, through training, through equipping, um, education. Huge because so many are so biblically illiterate in mm-hmm. our church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I also know that you do uh, camp PFC Pioneers for Christ, right. and that takes up a lot of your time. So. My question is, while doing all that ministry, uh, doing PFC on the side, as you know, all the other, these other things, but you're also working full time. Yeah. How in the world do you do that? So what yeah. what do you do first of all outside yeah. the church? That's a great question, um, and uh, it's a valid question. You know, I think the more important question or the more appropriate question is, how's my wife still happy? You know, <laughs> and I think, um, gosh, I wish you were here to answer that, um, because. Uh, for me, I think that's probably the biggest achievement out of all these things. Um, I tell her every day, you know, if I have to, that I'll walk away from all of it um, for the sake of our marriage. Mm. And um, it doesn't work without her. Um, and that's one of the things that we got started. When we first got started, we, we came to grips with together. Um, now, how do we do it? Um, there's a, you know, First Samuel chapter 15 you know, if I can go back to just an example in scripture, you have this, you have King Saul and his decline. 
And the chapter right after that, you, you have David and his anointing. And one of the things that people overlook, and I've overlooked for a long time because, you know, you're so focused on the preaching of the actual themes of the text itself. Mm-hmm. One of the things you overlooked when you look at it in minutia is um, David may not have had all the qualities and the credentials of, of a worldly king, but God was preparing him. And, you know, this is something that we look for as leaders. We look for the Davids. Samuel, he was so focused on the Eliabs, mm-hmm. uh, the Shamas uh, of, the, of the family. And uh, they look kingly. In fact, what he says, I believe, in First Samuel 16, when he looked at Eliab, he said that he pretty much uttered the same words that he uttered when he looked at Saul. Mm-hmm. But that's, that was the flaw. And uh, he was looking at different things. Um, I believe that God has, uh, at least in my life personally, it didn't happen overnight. The ability to manage and, and juggle multiple priorities and to view both of those and to treat both of those with a certain level of quality and excellence, um, it started very young. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I'm a single parent uh, child. So helping to manage the home is the man of the house. Uh, my father was murdered actually in Philadelphia when I was a child. And, um, and I think uh, it, it, I came to grips very early that I'm going to have to help run the home. So that plus being excellent in schoolwork, sports, school has a way of just naturally teaching you that. I mean, everybody has access to that. Even if you come from an intact family, you grow with certain innate abilities to grow uh, in those skill sets. When you go to college, that, that widens. You really test it to a certain another level. And I think that's what happened in college. But um, running camp from Boston with partners that are down here in Philadelphia definitely trained it's the it's the late nights when you're younger you can do that it's the late nights the all-nighters the traveling I did that for the better part of 10 years and uh there was I think once I graduated college I was traveling down to Philadelphia from from late April until about September I was traveling down here just about every other weekend and uh, the late night travels, the weekend long spurts of training and learning and teaching, and then going back up to Boston to go to church, um, that became a part of my life. Now, once I got married, that became a huge um, area of, well, how do you leverage what you've gained to continue to do this? So little by little, God, I think, was kind of building and stretching and, and preparing, much like David, who, if you think about it, when he was out in the field, he says to Saul in 1 Samuel 17, I've learned to kill a lion and a bear. So Goliath, although everybody else feared, in, in David's mind, he's just putting things into perspective. And uh, he's basically learned to kill things that were way bigger than him, stronger than him. And, you know, if you read some of the secular narratives that kind of explain or interpret that passage, they have a different bent altogether, a much more liberal bent to that. But at the end of the day, I think we would all agree that God was preparing David to do particular things that, that as part of his spiritual journey, it brought him to his kingship, mm. you know. And um, he did the same as Jesus grew in, in, in favor of men uh, and with God, as he walked with God on earth in the same way. Um, you know, there was a preparation, you know, um, there was a wilderness, there was a baptism, there was a wilderness, there was a preparation to be able to absorb everything that he would absorb on the cross. Um, and I think, you know, in many ways we're, we're brought into that and that's the, that's the foundational thing from there. Hey, a lot of it's time management. Um, you know, my wife and I rarely break a date night. 
Uh, we make sure that we have one uh, so that we don't violate those things. There are certain things we keep. I, there's a, I have a family dinner that I do not break every every week. Um, you know, we don't break date night. Actually, we, we've broken it recently a few times, but that was actually on her volition. <laughs> um, and I don't want to throw her under the bus, but that was on hers. Um, and and we, we talk about those things uh, regularly. We, we keep certain days sacred for us. Um, there are certain days just to keep sane that we reserve just for the closest friends and we get together weekly with that in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the rest of it is, you know, you're spending nights um, meeting um, and uh, you spend part of your day, the way my day is organized, um, you know, working with uh, my, my client as well. Um, I spend my days kind of reorganizing and, um, you know, working sermon prep to certain portions that I set aside just for preparing sermons um, and, uh, so that I can stay focused on my work while doing church work. And then we spend a lot of time meeting with people afterwards, mm. you know, and my wife is very engaged in that too. So it's really a holistic thing. Once camp camp comes in at the end of the day, none of this stuff happens without a team. I have a wonderful team at PFC, a wonderful team at Metro. And if that team was not established in the early years of that first three years, that soul, in that soul presence that period, I wouldn't be able to keep doing what we're doing right now. Hmm. So all those things kind of play hand in hand and, and God uses it. A long-winded answer, but that's pretty much where it goes. Yeah. yeah. So you work in consulting. I, I heard you say yep. something about a client. Yep. Constantly meeting with people as well. Yeah. I've, I've serviced, uh, let's see, um, you know, probably three of the major industries in Philadelphia. In the Philadelphia area, you have pharmaceutical, finance, uh, and uh, publishing. Those are the three major industries. Pharmaceutical probably by far the biggest, and all the offshoots that come with that. Um, and and I've basically been let's see, I was part of um, Johnson and Johnson for over oh. ten years now, mm. and uh, I I'm, I'll be a senior manager at Johnson and Johnson, um, you know, going forward. Um, and part of what God has provided there is a stable income, so I don't have to rely on church during very volatile years. Uh, for for uh, a salary to be able to take care of my family, and um, that responsibility. So it's important to be excellent in your work, um, not just because of what it provides, but theologically because of what it represents and mm. what it is. Um, it's God using us to be creators and uh, to really be able to be satisfied. Um, you know what the Sabbath is is to work six days and then to be satisfied with what God has created, what God has done through you, and. Um, you really experience that at work. And I, and I have a heart for people who are working for that purpose because mm-hmm. I know the struggles. Work is cursed. I mean, what are the three things that were cursed? When the three things that existed before sin ever even entered the world is work, family, and rest. And all three, after the curse, after the fall, you see those things broken. Mm-hmm. And so um, those three areas are really primary foci in Metro in terms of our ministry to people. Um, for, for us, uh, just being able to juggle all those things uh, to be able to manage all that, uh, to be able to focus on um, being excellent in those things, uh, in teaching as well as in, in the workplace. As a consultant, um, yeah, I, you know, eight hours a day, 10 hours a day, I'm focused on things that have nothing tangibly to do with ministry, but you're still a church planner there. Mm-hmm. You know, you're still developing relationships and um, you're still building um, good relationships. You're still, a, you have to be a witness as a Christian, all those things you're inherently learning. So I think in many ways, being a bivocational minister, God has, God has used my, my uh, bivocational status to always be on my toes 
and dialoguing with people who are de-churched or non-believers. Mm. And that has only helped me. I don't see that as a detriment at all. You kind of mentioned already some pros and cons of yeah. uh, bivocational <laughs> ministry, but um, anything in particular that you haven't yet mentioned, maybe the pros first and the cons? The pros are, um, as a pastor, you don't rely on your... We knew that at Metro, um, because of the types of people that will be coming in, de-churched, non-churched, um, they're going to be skeptical of their leaders. Um, they were, they've already built in skepticism. They're not going to give to the church a whole lot. That's going to come through discipleship. So really, one of the pro- byproducts of our... If, we're, if our discipleship was successful, we figured the revenue would go up. And we're right. That's what's been happening. But um, we said, hey, we don't want to rely on them. We don't want to pressure them, rely on them to ever have to give to support us. That comes later as a part of their responsibility as members in the church. And so um, we started out and said, hey, we want to be fully funded outside. Um, That's a pro. Uh, Another pro is that um, people don't have a, in many ways, this is America. We, We have a right to personal and private finances. You don't have to open that up to anybody. Not because we're doing anything shady, but we're private citizens, just as much as anybody else. And um, you know, when you're not held, when you're not being paid by the entity uh, by a church, you're not held accountable to what you're spending to some degree. Now there is some accountability, obviously. Um, you know, there I do believe that you have to be a good steward of your finances, and so there's a certain range and level. But by and large, um, they're not providing you any funds. And so they're not asking you to provide them a report of where it's being spent. Mm-hmm. That's the second thing. We see that in a lot of cultural and, and traditional churches. They do account for those kind of things. Um, the third thing is, um, you know, it enables me to take care of other people outside of myself um, because I have a lot of disposable income, a lot of the money that goes back into ministry. And so my wife and I, uh, we budget a certain amount as part of our tithe to give back to people and to be able to take them out without using church expenses. Mm. So even that way, genuinely, every dollar that comes into the church is used for other church expenses. Um, some of the cons, um, you know, it's it's a, it's eight to ten hours of your day. And it's eight to ten hours of your best day, best part of your day. And so you really have to train yourself to itemize your day in such a way that the latter part of your hours are your best hours. Mm. And um, that takes a certain kind of discipline. You really have to discipline yourself. People who are not bivocational don't have to think like that. And it is a huge risk. Not everybody, I don't believe everybody's built that way. I think you can train yourself to a certain degree, but beyond that, you still have a baseline. And if you can't, if your threshold is very, very low, then bivocational ministry probably isn't for you um, because your threshold has to be very, very high uh, to begin with. Um, There's that. um, Your time is limited. And so you have to train yourself to value every person you're meeting with. It's got to be very strategic and very purposeful. So every congregant I meet with, and I meet with probably, you know, in a scheduled format, I probably meet with two to three a week unscheduled probably a dozen and so with all the people that i meet with all the people i talk to they know that every conversation is intentional and it's meaningful to me it's valuable to me there's a reason for it but does a bivocational a person who's not bivocational have to really focus on that i think they should it's still important but they just don't have to focus on it the way we do you know so that's 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 the key and i think that is a con because you go to bed late some days Mm. and you're tired um 
I don't know. I don't. I don't know. I mean, Justin, you probably know this. I mean, it, there's nothing more exhilarating than the ministry. Mm-hmm. You know, and it it has its pitfalls. Ministry by nature, pastors get killed every day. You know, the only person who probably gets killed more than pastor is probably the president of the United States. <laughs> you know, but you know, God gives us encouragement in such amazing ways that we don't necessarily even deserve, and it's certainly not what we signed up for. We signed up for it because it's a calling, you know. Mm. And so that's uh, you. You do find the energy and the strength to do it, you know. And there is. So in that line of thought, um, would you encourage all pastors to try it out? Or you kind of yeah. talking about it before? Or does it take a specific type of person to do it? Yeah, uh, great question. Um, when I was at, a, I, I, I have the privilege of doing a, a being a part of a, a panel discussion every year at Westminster Seminary, and uh, that question comes up every year <laughs> when I when I'm part of that panel. Um, and my answer to that is, I think everybody should be open to trying it, because some of the other benefits is you get to connect with your congregation in ways that somebody who is not bivocational will never be able to connect. Mm. Do you need it? No. It's a calling, and you do your work. You understand what an eight-hour day is. Every pastor understands the pressures of an eight-hour day with overtime, managing family and managing children and managing just daily struggles financially or physically or any other way. So you don't need it. But um, one of the – I think the, the struggles that our people face, especially in our economy today, is the uncertainties of life, um, the threats that come with work, the pressures of being – somebody who's out in the workplace that is completely secular. And um, those are things that, you know, you don't necessarily always get an opportunity to engage in deeply. Um, even if you, as a pastor, are engaging with non-believers every day, it's different. It's a, it's a different experience. And I can speak to that because I think very few people can speak as authoritatively in terms of the actual experience then when you're engaging day to day, every day, every hour with with uh, a non-believer, mm. learning to develop a compassion, a language, a voice, a way of speaking to people, those are all very important. Um, I do encourage it. It'll also help with the fundraising. Now, I don't think it should take the place of fundraising. I still raise funds. Um, and it's important to do that because eventually you have to walk away from it. You know, now you don't have to walk away from it. There are people who are tent makers for the rest of their lives, but I think you know. I think at some point you have to reconsider that. You know, and I think I'm still in the stage where I think it's allowable and viable. At some point, I myself, we have an end point. There's an end game to this, um, where a church can fully fund you, especially as we have multiple plants, multiple sites. Mm. The pressures are just going to get too great. And it's going to suck more and more of your time. You're not going to be able to focus on your work as well with the kind of quality you're, it's, that's demanded of you. Is there one type of person? I think um, I think there is a certain threshold that if you cross that threshold, you're probably, you can at least do it. And you can do it well. I think everybody should be open to it and try it. You won't know till you try. But, um, you know, I don't think we should be as flippant. You know, we should gauge what type of personality we have. Um, you know, one of the primary criticisms I hear about pastors who are not, you know, I guess basically the easy way to say it is, um, you know, culturally Korean pastors, you know, culturally Asian. We could be 
we could look and act and grow up in the States and yet still be culturally Korean or culturally part of our own culture. I think um, one of the biggest criticisms is the social awkwardness because they never really, they stayed kind of within their culture all the way through. They grew up in an Asian church. They hung out with only Asians in college. They predominantly hung out with Asians in the church in college and after college. So you never really branched out. Just maybe you have eight hours or 10 hours a day that you're spending at work. And even there, there's a distinction between your work and your friends. And you completely segregate that, that, that compartmentalize that eight hour period in your life, which is a huge period. It's one third of your life. And so, um, that, that kind of social awkwardness that develops and really plugging into what's going on culturally in our, and societally, um, bivocational ministry really helps with that. Mm. It really does. You definitely have a good lay of the land and you can speak very, almost authoritatively to that. And I think that does help. I, I think it's helpful. I think if you can cross that threshold, be open to it, measure out whether or not you can, you can handle that type of, to what your threshold is, you know, um, I don't, I don't think it just means that you have to be a night owl, you know, because night owls have trouble in the morning. Mm -hmm. You have to be kind of both, but you don't have to be one or the other. It's a matter of training, having a certain threshold where I can handle up to a certain point. It's probably more than the average person. And then from there, you know, testing your limits and training yourself, everything that where we are is training. You know, I used Mm -hmm. to, I could sleep eight hours, seven hours a day, like anybody else over the years, I've just needed less, you know, I think I'm built a certain way that kind of helps, but then I don't think it's purely just being built a certain way. Mm-hmm. I think there's a certain amount of nurture that comes with it. Yeah. There's something about working outside of church, um, where interactions with non-believers, it really is helpful in shaping the way you do yeah. ministry. Cause I was working at Apple for a little bit. I was talking to you a little bit before. Um, and just talking with different kinds of people has completely changed the way that I think um, the in, it, the gospel can make an impact into someone's life. That's right. And I'm sure you, you have that every single day, even That's full-time right. ministry and full-time work. That's right. Um, yeah. Um, and one question that I had, and uh, I'm, I hope that I'm going to be able to phrase this okay, um, as on the other side, as church members... Um, if you know that your pastor is kind of doing bivocational ministry, um, whether it be full-time ministry or part-time ministry and, and full-time uh, work, um, what kind of expectations should you have or should you not have? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I appreciate it because um, ministry, it, especially, and I don't know if I'm speaking just for Metro, I think across the board, um a lot of traditional churches have a particular view of what their pastor is expected to do. When we started Metro, we said, um, well, let's do some research. And let's what is normative? Because I don't think we grew up in a normative setting. I believe that the pastors in our culture just got murdered uh, because... And they were killing themselves. I mean, they were, they were spending so many hours with people and sermon prep and just doing ministry. And yet... Um, they were still criticized because there wasn't enough of them to go around, and uh, and their wives were criticized. I mean, I saw that. I'm not a I'm not a pastor's child, but I saw that a lot, and it's one of the reasons why I ran from ministry for a long, long time because I didn't want to be a part of that. I didn't want to raise my kids that way. Mm-hmm. But um, I think one of the things that uh, is is when we started Metro, we said we're gonna 
we have to rethink what you expect of a pastor that is normative. We did a lot of research and we said, okay, we kind of established, I think this is probably more on the normative scale, you know? And um, as we found the D church community that's coming in, their view of what a pastor is um, very, very different. And they said, hey, you know, because they don't, they don't have a very aberrant view of work and life and personal. They, they don't, they look at things that, hey, everything should be balanced and managed. Why should your life be any different? And we, our lay leadership team is about 33, 34 people. My lay leadership team is probably more protective of my time and how I spend it than probably like within my own family. <laughs> you know, they're very, very careful because they understand not just because I'm bivocational, which as a pastor, it in many ways is no different than them. You know, it, they, they would be upset if their boss called them in the middle of the night expecting something of them to drop everything and go and, and see them. And in the same way, they have the same type of, hey, here, I think we have some more normative expectations of you, culturally normative. Um, they're not Asian-based thinkers. Uh, so their expectations, and they're not traditional thinkers. I want to say it's much more um, progressive in their view of, hey, you know, this is the space that you should have. And we should be giving you private space. We should be giving you private time. You should be able to go on date nights and enjoy vacations and study breaks and study weeks. And so I think it's more the bridge between what is traditional and cultural versus what is now progressive and mainstream. And I think we kind of bridge that in some ways. So this is going to kind of lead into the next uh, topic we want to talk about is leadership development. But in light of that, do you think <clears throat> this is kind of a general statement and it might be kind of unfair to you, but do you think uh, the role of a pastor or the job of the pastor, it has to kind of evolve in a way to fit the times? You know what I mean? So, so like, um, you know, certain things about pastoral ministry you have to hold dear um, yeah. and protect, but... Uh, just like the gospel, the gospel itself, the kernel is the most important thing. Yeah. And you can't really cover it with other things, keeping people yeah. from getting to the gospel in that same way um, that the gospel can kind of transform in certain ways throughout culture. Um, do you think this at this time, uh, the job of the pastor or the the perception of a pastor as well, do you think that has to kind of change to fit the culture yeah. now where it's moving? I think it is changing. Um, you know, I think people like, you know, our, our Anglo partners, you know, the Redeemers, um, who are now, if you look at Redeemer, you know, two of the three or two of now four congregations are led by Asians. Mm. And um, completely different model, the way they support their ministers, what their ministers are called to do. But let's start from the base. Acts chapter six, we're called to the ministry of the word, ministry of prayer. Right, that's never going to change. Mm. You know, that's that's normative. That's that's theologically normative, as part of our calling. We're called to pastor, right? Now, now, what, what does that mean? Well, there's ministry of the word, ministry of prayer. How that plays out, the ministry of the word branches into many things, and that's where all these gifts come into play. Mm. People have different giftings. If you look at like Ephesians chapter four, verses eleven to sixteen, they have, or is it the you have the you have the Apostles, some are called to be apostles, prophets, teachers, pastors, uh, and um, what is it, the fifth one? Uh, 
you know, well, there's five, right? Um, so I you got know that too. <laughs> Shepherd, I'm just throwing um, it out there. <laughs> oh, yeah, just pastors. You're right. Yeah, it's pastors. Yeah, um, because they have the pastoral <clears throat> gifting. So there's the five. You have these five gifts, um, and and that's how the ministry of the world is really going to play out. Um, and people are going to be strong. I remember one of my mentors telling me everyone's got at least one. Right. Um, but some of you are going to be stronger in more than others. And, and I, I believe it was somebody, uh, it might have been Keller or somebody said, hey, if you're, he believes it's prophet, priest, and king. That's the way he views it. Right. It's, it's kind of pretty much two sides of the same coin. Um, I think that um, the roles, those normative roles are always going to be there. That was my yeah. only point in saying that they're yeah. foundational. The expectations that are placed from a cultural or societal standpoint. I think you're gonna, it's going to ebb and flow. You know, I think you're always going to have people in your church that have a very traditional expectation of who you are, and you have to manage that. And if you have a team that is on board, they will help to manage that. That's what I've learned. Then you have people who are way progressive. They just think of it as corporate, like it's a, a corporate structure. Yeah. You know, so you should be running your church like a corporate structure. Very, very different. That's not where we're going either. Mm -hmm. And so you have to manage that and your leadership team will have to manage that as well. Is it changing? I think it is changing. I think the face of things are changing because we have so many Anglo uh, and black uh, people who've gone before us who are already doing things at different levels. And we're really just kind of moving into that space towards that kind of progressive space ourselves in terms of how we manage our time and how we manage our finances and how we are being financed and what kind of time we're given. But... Mm -hmm. By and large, uh, I think for me, I focus on the foundational and the normative and let Metro, uh, it's not really about contextualizing to answer the question. Um, we really are, we believe that there's some aspects of traditional that we have to adopt. We have, And there are some aspects of progressive that we have to adopt, mm -hmm. partly because we are here in this context. So I think it is context-based mm -hmm. in some ways, you know, and um but then some parts, you know, are traditional that we do maintain and we hold as well, you know. So, um, you know, concept. And I'll give you an example. Um, today we do the old school. They did a lot more house visitations. Yeah, that was like a very very big part. Yeah, yeah. Nowadays people get together and have coffee, mm. right? Starbucks is now the the third place, which yeah. is what they always wanted to be, right? For us, we do both. You know, we do both not because we have to cater to both. But there is a certain value in visiting somebody's home, coming into their home, praying on the family. It's a purely part of our discipleship effort, you know. And then there's value. Some some conversations can be held at Starbucks. Mm -hmm. We also, unlike a lot of our traditional friends, we invite a lot more people in, and we have a lot more stuff ha happens. My house, this is about as quiet as you'll ever see it, <laughs> you know. Um, it it it's always alive, you know. So people are over a lot, and. Um, and that's that's part of it. So we we, we straddle both. Yeah, yeah, definitely takes a balance. I think absolutely definitely right in that. Uh, you're big on leadership development, uh, whether it comes to camp. Yep. I'm assuming even at work, just some kind of development there, and big at church. Um, what would you say the leadership model, if you have one, yep. at Metro would be? Yeah, um, my favorite question. You know, um, I'm a big baseball fan, um, and uh, in baseball. Um, I don't know if you're a big fan or not, but um, you always build up the middle. Mm -hmm. And so your foundational pieces in your team are based on the middle of the field. Center fielder, because when they get older, they become right and left fielders. Second baseman, 
and shortstop, right? Because they become, you know, generally first baseman and, and third baseman, mm-hmm. right? Your worst fielder usually becomes your first baseman, your pitcher and your catcher. Mm-hmm. Those are the foundational elements. And so we have to figure out, um, and there's a, you know, um, we, we try to, we said, hey, there's certain things that we believe that um, you have to build up the middle. You know, you have to build people um, who have certain raw abilities to go any which direction as they age and mature. That was, a, that was one of our pillars. Second pillar is, I don't know if a lot of people have seen the movie. I don't know if you've read the book, Moneyball. Mm, I watched a movie. Moneyball showed me one thing, and that is that we overlook the things that actually matter when we're building a team. You know, because there's certain things that look obvious, but the reason why those obvious elements are there is because there's something underlying those elements that actually make those obvious statistics show up. So uh, Moneyball taught me that. And uh, Billy Bean now, who's the general manager for the A's, who started that team, he's still the general manager for that team. He travels the country more speaking about how to build a team, period, mm. whether it's in finance and in just corporate culture versus just a baseball team. You know, mm. Now, uh, we said, okay, well, I think, I think we grossly understate certain aspects of people's character that is probably 50 times more important than what we look for when we, when we, when we say, hey, that person's going to be a good leader. Mm. You know, I think everybody looks at certain qualities of a leader and we say, well, that's obvious. In the old days, they looked at how tall you were, what family you came from. And today, you know, so King Saul was obvious. You know, when everybody looked at Saul, he was the one you looked to, right? But what they didn't see was his character. Saul had a, Saul had a tremendous amount of pride. And, uh, and it was a, really, at the end of the day, his distance from God was because he really, it, it was, there was a, a certain humility that he lacked that David inherently had, because, not because he was such a good person, but because he was, he was a believer. He knew. He knew the Lord. And because he knew the Lord, there was a certain humility that came from that and a certain confidence that comes from that. And uh, what I find is that when you look at just worldly, we look at a lot, when we look at worldly, just when you look at leaders in the church, we still gauge them based on things that most of my friends at, at corporate will look for when they hire their directors. You know, they look for people who are very outspoken, who can command an audience, who have great vocal talent, right? They look for people with a physical presence. They look for people with good credentials. And um, and so, but, you know, of course, you know, I originally was going to go to Westminster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, <clears throat> my mentors convinced me to, to kind of go into this other PCA program um, as a way of kind of bringing credibility to the program because I went to grad school. I went to I went to undergrad in a secular institution, you know, in Boston, right? Um, but I said, okay, uh, maybe. So when I came out of that program, I realized it's not really worth much outside of outside of our circles, you know. Without a Westminster degree, without a degree from a national seminary, you're not really worth much. You have an equivalent. So what I did was I said, okay, but maybe in many ways it's been a godsend because God's it, what I've been what I've learned was that. I should be looking for people that not necessarily, I mean, having a degree, we have people who have degrees in our church. Um, we have people from Westminster at our church. It's not like that I'm looking down on people with a seminary degree. Absolutely not. In fact, there's such value to that these days. That's the first place I start. But it's what 
when I when I listen to their story, I'm looking for certain things that most people assume, you know, or hope for because they see the credentials. I'm not as blinded by the credentials. I've just kind of built that way over the course of time through experience. I've seen a lot of talented people um, who are just who aren't very good assets in the church because they start out great, but at the end of the day, they're built on pride and they just lack a certain humility and they're so insecure, they lack a certain confidence. And it's the gospel. And so, uh, you know, what is true kingliness? You know, John chapter 12, uh, triumphal entry of Christ. You know, you have the king seated on a donkey's colt. So this, this concept of this, this humility and confidence that comes because, and this is him, all, Jesus, all the more as he knew that he's entering into Jerusalem, knowing what's going to happen to him, right? And so what kind of, what confidence is that? And yet what kind of humility is that? And so for me, I'm looking for character. We're going to look for character, character above talent. And so, um, you know, have we had interpersonal issues within our staff? We have. We've let go of people, character issues, not because of a lack of talent, character issues, uh, all character. Um, we've also promoted people where people are like, why him? He doesn't look like a leader. He wouldn't have been a leader in any other church. It's because we're looking at character. Mm-hmm. We're building up the middle because that character will spawn position, will spawn everyone's got gifts. You see? So if we're just finding, what good are you if you're just going to find gifted people and you're putting them in a certain place and let them flourish? They would have done that anywhere they would have been, anywhere else in the world, no matter what church, no matter what institution they've been a part of. Mm. I mean, for the most part. But what if you take somebody who's humble, but who has a gospel confidence and they embrace their church's values? You can train that person and then there are things that they will do that could have only been done because God has called them and God is leading them through in the context of discipleship, you know, and I find that way more powerful and transforming. And so the first three years of Metro, we built a leadership training program that was really founded as a part of uh, all my years, about 20 years serving in the camp ministry. We developed a program that's been very successful among our leaders. And those people have all plugged into their churches. They're not less church people. They're actually more church people. We have, we have deacons uh, we have deacons at Redeemer. We have we have people who are who are also very very strong in their lay field. Mm. We have people who are pastors that we've developed over the years. We have people who are very very intimately tied, even at the point of elders and and that level in the church here in Philadelphia. So we have people who have wide ranging credentials, but um, we said, hey, we're going to give them a philosophy of ministry. We're going to give them uh, the gospel engine that's going to hopefully transform and, and give them power in what they do and who they are. And we're going to teach them how to minister to people. And then we're just going to walk with them over the course of years. Let's walk with them. Let's say if they stay with us, it's going to be one year leading to two years, leading to five years, 10 years. And now I think, um, and then the irony is that I actually refused to invite any of them to join our original launch team because I didn't want Metro to be viewed as a camp church, hmm. you know, because I was so intimately tied to that under ministry. I mean, some people probably still think it is because a lot of those guys during the second wave of people coming into our church, they were, I invited them then. Um, but those guys, some of those guys I've been walking with since they were seven, uh-huh. you know, um, a lot of them I didn't start getting to know really deeply and intimately until they were in their teens, late teens, like 17, 18, since college. And, you know, not when I look at our, our you know, our worship director, I met him in 2007, long before Metro was even conceived. 
And, uh, we, you know, we actually joked around the other day and said, this is our 10th year technically serving together and ministry. Uh, I met him at a, at a, at a KFC in, in, uh, in Pensacola, New Jersey. We said, we're going to actually go back there and have a date together because it's just kind of relive when we first met each other. But he was a very different person when I met him, you know, and that's the whole story. The, the crux of the story is that they all are. And the surprise is who he is to me today is so different than what I ever thought he would be when I just looked at talent, you know, or just a raw person. And that's the beauty of it. And Trellis and the Vine, Colin, or the Tony Payne and Colin Marshall, those guys, when they wrote that book, um, they explicate a lot of the stuff that we're already doing. Um, and it's all about, hey, instead of finding, what if church was all about, instead of finding people to fill roles, we develop people and, and we build those roles around them, you know, and then we just continue to walk with them. So they, they, as the role, as they grow, the role and, and everything that they do will grow. And they're really just an outpost of your church. You know, we have 30 some people in the late field doing that right now. So it's not a wonder that Metro as a congregation has kind of grown. And we've somehow, my biggest fear was how do we maintain our collective soul when now people who aren't part of the original launch team are becoming leaders? Well, it's because they've been discipled. They're growing. And discipleship, not as like formal Gamaliel and the Apostle Paul kind of discipleship, or Socrates, Plato, but more discipleship in terms of I'm walking with you every day, every week. I'm walking with you. Some people need more than others, you know, non-Christian to Christian. We have heroin addicts that are now leaders in our addictions ministry, <laughs> mm, wow. you know, and it's an amazing transformation, you know. Um, and so I think the beauty of that is just day-to-day -day walking. They're living with us, you know, they're living with leaders and they become leaders themselves. And in that process, so I can't, I can't really take credit for it. It's really a philosophy of ministry that people have adopted. And our leaders are now doing that and propagating that as an organic part of just them living out their faith, you know? And what am I doing? Well, I'm giving them basic training. Um, there's certain aspects of training that are required among all leaders in our church because it's the engine. That's the gospel engine that we're giving and imparting. And we need to make sure we're all on the same page there and then from there, there's second tier education that you can grow. The skills come last. All the sure. skills is just all part of the part. So instead of telling somebody, hey, you're good at, I'll give you an example. Hey, you're good at building a website. Can you build our website? That's your role. Instead of doing that, it's, we have a, I, I need a website. But the thing is, I'm going to put that aside for a couple of years. I'm going to walk with you, grow you. You're going to become a Christian. As you become a Christian, you can become my friend. I'm going to continue to help you grow in faith. You know, the ministry of the word is what? Um, the Bible is all sufficient for faith and life, right? It is infallible in faith and life. Well, I'm going to grow you in the word, teach you scripture. You know, as you grow in faith, life circumstances come into play. I'm going to see you in situ in all those circumstances, teach you the philosophical framework by which we live our lives in ministry and also the transformative framework of the gospel and how it pertains to your life. So that if you can have a basic understanding of these things, you should be able to apply it to most things in your life. Hmm. You know, what is the religious way of looking at it? What is the uh, irreligious way of looking at things? What is the third way, as David Pallison would say at Westminster, right, uh, or CCEF, what is the third way of looking at life, you know, through the lens of scripture, by the gospel, and then from there, as they're trained to do that, they are already now bringing people in, you know, in their lives, and it just continues. 
And so your lineage, you know, NFL, right? You have one head coach who spawns like a million ex- assistant coaches um, who are all stellar in the same philosophy, right? We're doing the same thing here. We're propagating that. And this continues. <clears throat> and now it's starting to interweave because people are touching multiple people. They're crossing over. And so you're not just hearing one voice, you're hearing multiple voices. And it's a dynamic, that's what makes it dynamic, you know? And the best type of community, the best, the most dynamic community is reflective of the gospel because God himself is community. And so the best way to understand scripture and to understand God, I'm not saying looking at it as a democracy, but to see different voices all speaking and aligned with this with the different dimensions of the gospel really becoming an emphasis to become one church. That's what makes it awesome. You know, it also, it's also makes it tiring. You know, it's also (laughs) what makes it difficult because that can bring lots of dangers and risks with it. So our goal as pastors is to make sure that it's centralized, you know, so that, Hey, you know, we don't want any, uh, poor theology entering in. We don't want to driving those things. We're constantly championing our values and the gospel in that. So, you know, we don't, we don't, you know, we're Keller in, in center church in the book center church says that the, that our theology and our doctrines are essential because they serve as the operating system on which all the middleware and upper applications are based. And we are a hundred percent aligned to that, mm-hmm. you know, um, as, Younger pastors and leaders, uh, of course, we're not finished products yet. I don't think anyone's a finished product until right. we're glorified. Um, but as an older guy um, talking to a younger guy, what can you probably uh, say that we should desire to develop first? Because usually pastors, it's, I need to get my preaching better. I need to yeah. get my teaching or counseling better. But what are some things yeah. that, that we should first and foremost look at as the foundation besides our love for the gospel of course yeah so inherent if you have if we're saying let's make the assumption that the gospel is central Mm -hmm. to this person um i think uh from a personal standpoint developing a philosophy of ministry and that comes through i think mentoring you know you you have to see positive and negative examples to really develop your own philosophy and if you're just in positive you can become very dogmatic. And then if you try to apply that to another church setting, once you move on, if you move on, it can create problems. You have to see positive and negative aspects and really look at the foundational, the root causes for what makes those things successful or failures. You know, having a mentor walk you through that is, I think is vital. Mm. And I think somebody asked me that one of our panel discussions at Westminster, and I said the same thing. You know, you can't rely on yourself. Number one, you have clouded vision. Why? Because you have different idols. You have different uh, sin patterns. Uh, You have just indwelling sin prevents you from always seeing everything clearly. So right off the bat, you need a mentor for that, you know, and that plays out in ministry like crazy. Um, But I think you need um, just somebody who's been people who are who get the gospel, who really understand, who have been there, who have been through it. You know, and I've been blessed myself. I mean, to this day, um, I have mentors that I regularly talk to. I talk to one mentor every week, you know, and we spend about an hour or half an hour every week talking and praying. Oh. And it's, um, and, uh, and he's a fellow church planter. Um, I also have most of my best friends, none of them are Asian. Most of my best friends are all somewhere between five and 10 years older than me. 
there are most of them are in church planting. Mm. And so I have a, a wealth of resources and they're all reformed. And so I've, we don't have to sit there and dialogue against yeah. each other's theology. So I can sit here and talk through, um, just cut to the nature of like the issues. Um, I think that's very important. Number two, I think um, we spend a lot more time theologically putting a sermon together than actually learning what it means to preach and really doing ministry. You know, I think if you want to develop a, a good homiletic, right, um, you know, you have exegesis and, and hermeneutic. If you want to develop a good homiletic, it's important to engage with people. Mm. In fact, your hermeneutic is oftentimes tested in your engaging with people, you know, because you can have a theological basis for everything that you're saying, and yet it may not quite cross that bridge in terms of having people understand where you're coming from. So even your use of illustrations, which I'm very careful of doing even in sermon preaching, I rarely use illustrations that are, that are uh, you know, progressive or even uh, contextual all the time in that sense. Um, but it, it really comes from my experience with people, walking with people for years and years and years, you know. Um, and so I always say, if you want to develop in your preaching, spend 60% of your time with people, you know, ministering to them, learning how to speak to them. Because if you can counsel them, that counsel matures. What do you think it becomes? You know, because if it's doctrinally sound, that's going to come out in your preaching tomorrow, you know. And um, I think Keller, I think he recently, uh, not recently, I think in the last maybe three or four years ago, somebody asked him, you know, how, how long do you do you prepare for your sermons? And he said, well, I think the, I think he spends a certain amount of time, but I think what they asked him then, what do you suggest to younger preachers? And I think he said something like, I think he said, don't spend more than six hours a week. I don't even think he did that. <laughs> but spend that time doing ministry. Mm. And I think I think, as, I think there's wisdom in that because as you get older, you get more time to spend sitting, contemplating, meditating on scripture and, and to be able to teach effectively. You want to build a base when you're young, walking with people so that you understand who you're speaking with and who you're speaking to. And uh, your counsel naturally, be, it's just more organic because your counsel is going to be every day, you know? Um, so I think mentoring, developing a philosophy of ministry, applying that in ministry, engaging with people, uh, and having that play out in your, in your preaching, you know, I mean, we said when we first came in, we have to have solid preaching. Well, that was a challenge because I've never preached consistently. I don't think I pre preached more than a month at a time, you know, consistently. And then all of a sudden I'm doing it every week. And so, um, but, and I didn't like it in the beginning. I think my first two years I struggled with. The laborious nature of spending 15 hours a week on a sermon, you know, while juggling all these other things, especially it's existential because like 40 minutes later, it's over and you got to do it all over again, <laughs> yeah. you know, but it became more enjoyable when I was engaging with the people, you know, as I engage, as I start to get to know our people and, and my philosophy of ministry was either affirmed or slightly adjusting, you know, um, the preaching became a lot easier, you know, and more enjoyable. Hopefully it's reflective of that. You know, mm -hmm. I think those are the big things. And then, you know, I think we tend to neglect family in the midst of all that. Um, and far be it for me to say you gotta you can't neglect family. I think that's a big part of your practical theology is if your functional theology is lived out in family. Mm -hmm. And so uh, my presence in my family, my active presence in my family, whether it's someone as young as my, I have two nephews, 
um, all the way to my wife and, and my mother and my in-laws. They, they all have to play well together, you know, and managing that is probably, you know, your ability to do that and not make excuses because of ministry all the time or because of work all the time, it all plays a factor. Your view of faith and work, your theology of, of work, your theology of family, all these kind of things will play a factor as you build your council and, and build a church. Lastly, um, I think uh, uh, Jim Collins, who wrote a book called Good to Great, um, he wrote a book called Good to Great. He's, his prequel to that book was called Built to Last. But Good to Great, he always says he should have written first. Um, he's probably the, he's a Stanford professor. Um, he's also uh, uh, for their management program. Um, and he's also probably the world's leading manage, uh, management consultant. You know, in that book, he says, uh, core values, there's one book just dedicated to core values. That's the prequel book, right? But then he says, after that, it's all about who. Who do you have on your team? You know, so before you think about location, do demographic studies, do anything, you have to start building a team, yeah. a team of people. And I think that's counter to what most of us do when we plant churches. We think about what we're doing. What's our message? What's our vision? Where is it going to be? Morning or afternoon? Morning or afternoon or evening? Um, who's going to do this? And you know, who, who are we going to place in these roles? What roles do we need? Jim Collins says the most successful institutions, and he does a lot of nonprofit consulting, including churches. Um, he says the most successful institutions across the board focus on who am I building with first, hmm. and then we figure out who what we're building together. You know, and that's that's rooted in discipleship, I think, honestly. You know, I mean, the people that you walk most effectively with, if you guys planted a church together, you'd be more successful. You got a mm. better shot at success, mm. you know. And and the people you're mentoring that you can really trust as you mentor. You, know, you mentor 10 people, they're just inevitably people you trust more. Jesus had three disciples he spent way more time with than the other nine, you know. And they saw everything. Peter, James, and John saw everything, you know. I think uh, in many ways, in the same way, you have to have your own circle that you say, hey, these are the ones I'm going to invest the most time in. If you ever plant something, they're the ones you're going to go to. Thank you so much for your time, Pastor Donnie. I'm hoping we can do this again. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening and join us on the next episode of the Direct Trade Initiative Podcast. See you.